Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and financial regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on developments in corporate governance and financial regulation and CII's related advocacy activities. This update covers the period from August 2nd to August 31st. So let's start with the United States Congress. On August 2nd, three senators, Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, and Chris Van Hollen of Maryland sent a letter urging the Department of Treasury Climate Counselor, John Morton, to take swift and aggressive action to tackle the climate crisis. And seeking information on how Mr. Morton intends to coordinate a strategy in response to President Joe Biden's May executive order directing Treasury to issue a report on how agencies are integrating climate-related financial risk into their policies and programs. The senators stress that it is imperative that Mr. Morton wield his leadership position in Treasury to support efforts to align financial regulators and implement strong guidelines to ensure that banks and financial institutions, which continue to finance risky fossil fuel investments, are adequately prepared for climate-related disruptions. Accordingly, the senators request information on, among other topics, the following two items. One, the actions Mr. Morton is taking to coordinate the financial regulators so that they are all aligned on climate risk. And two, whether Mr. Morton has provided guidance to the financial sector on how to assess environmental risks. On August 3rd, the Senate Banking Committee held an oversight hearing at which Acting Comptroller of the Currency, Michael J. Hsu, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Chair, Jelena McWilliams, and National Credit Union Administration Chair, Todd M. Harper, fielded questions on a variety of regulatory and supervisory issues. Acting Comptroller Hsu testified that banks and supervisors are developing methods for identifying, measuring, and managing physical and transition risk from climate change. Acting Comptroller Hsu outlined the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency's two-pronged approach for addressing climate-related financial risks under which the agency intends to, one, engage with and learn from other regulators, and two, support the development and adoption of effective climate risk management practices, especially at large banks. In particular, Acting Controller Shu highlighted the Office of the Comptroller Currency's recent decision to join the network for greening the financial system and said he has asked staff to review and evaluate the current range of climate risk management practices with an eye towards identifying best practices and laggards. On August 6th, Representative Sean Caston of Illinois, a member of the Committee on Financial Services, 
wrote an opinion piece in The Hill. The piece criticized Robin Hood for creating behavioral feedback loops that push users to make trades at a higher volume and complexity than they otherwise would. Representative Kasten stated that he began sounding the alarm about Robin Hood and trading apps when Alex Kearns, a 20-year-old college student from Naperville, Illinois, took his own life after seeing a negative balance of more than $700,000 in his account. Representative Kasten stated he has introduced the Trading is Not a Game Act, directing the Government Accountability Office to conduct a study on the impacts of gamification, psychological nudges, and other design techniques used by online platforms to influence the behavior of investors. Specifically, the bill defines gamification and directs the Government Accountability Office in coordination with other regulatory agencies, including the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, the North American Securities Administrators Association, the Securities Exchange Commission, and the SEC's Investor Advocate, to look at both the positive and negative effects of gamification, examine if certain game-like features constitute investment advice, and provide findings as well as recommendations to Congress within a 270-day deadline. Turning now to recent activities of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. On August 6th, the SEC approved NASDAQ's push to help get more women and minorities on the boards of public companies. The commission approved NASDAQ's proposed board diversity disclosure rules for companies listed on the exchange. Both commissioners, Elad Roisman and Hester Peirce, dissented from the approval. The rules require NASDAQ-listed companies to have or explain why they do not have at least two diverse directors, including one female director and one director who self-identifies as a racial or ethnic minority or as LBGTQ. Listed companies will also be required to publicly disclose board-level diversity statistics using a standardized template. NASDAQ also will provide its listed companies with complimentary access for one year to a board recruiting tool to help them identify diverse candidates. While SEC staff was expected to have approved the standard under delegated authority, the approval by the full commission may have been a deliberate move to avoid a petition for review by critics that would have delayed the ultimate decision. In announcing the commission's approval, SEC Chair Gary Gensler said the rules will allow investors to gain a better understanding of NASDAQ-listed companies' approach to board diversity while ensuring that those companies have the flexibility to make decisions that best serve their shareholders. In his brief statement, Chair Gensler also noted that a broad cross-section of commentators supported the proposed board diversity disclosure rule CII is among those who voiced strong support in two separate comment letters to the SEC. Commissioners Allison Heron-Lee and Carolyn Crenshaw joined Chair Gensler in hailing the decision and suggested a broader definition of diversity may be appropriate, 
in a joint statement, Commissioner Lee and Crenshaw noted that there is more work to be done in improving board diversity and transparency at public companies. For example, disability may be a relevant characteristic as well as diversity among senior management and the workforce more broadly. Representative Maxine Waters of California, chair of the House Financial Services Committee, also urged the SEC to go further. In an August 11th statement, Chair Waters said that, quote, this work is not done. There are other exchanges that do not have a similar listing requirement. The SEC must now ensure that public companies provide the diversity data that investors demand, unquote. To date, however, New York Stock Exchange has shown no interest in following NASDAQ's footsteps on a comply or explain diversity disclosure listing standard. SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce blasted the commission's decision in a long, detailed dissent. She said NASDAQ failed to show that his proposal was consistent with the federal securities laws and that the proposal was contrary to fundamental constitutional principles. Commissioner Elad Roisman supported NASDAQ's proposal to offer listed companies recruiting services to help identify diverse board candidates, but he did not support the disclosure requirements of the listing standard. On August 19th, CII sent a letter to the SEC weighing in on the regulatory priorities that the commission set out in its spring 2021 agenda. The letter expresses support for the following five items. One, the SEC's reclassification of listing standards for recovery of erroneously awarded compensation from long-term actions to the proposed rule stage. CII encourages the commission to move this item into the final rule stage promptly to help investors recover incentive compensation not owed in the event of financial restatement. After experience implementing a new rule, investors, companies, and other market participants could better determine whether a broader clawback policy should be mandated at listed companies. Two, CII also supports the SEC's classification of actions to improve Rule 10b-5-1 trading plans under the proposed rule stage. CII makes several suggestions on what it believes should be included in a proposed rule on these plans. Those suggestions include limiting the ability of companies and company insiders to adopt multiple trading plans, limiting the frequency that they can modify or cancel the plans, and requiring them to file with the commission trading plan adoptions, amendments, terminations, and transactions. CI's letter also recommends that the SEC mandate at least a three-month cooling off period between plan adoptions and amendments and the initial trade execution. Three, CII supports adding to the SEC agenda proposed rules to improve the disclosure of the reconciliation to generally accepted accounting principles of non-GAAP metrics used to set executive compensation. CI's letter cautions that while non-GAAP financial measures may be useful in evaluating a company's performance, they also may be misused to opportunistically report higher profit and higher executive compensation. CI's letter states that CI believes it's imperative that the SEC require at a minimum that companies include a hyperlink to a GAAP 
reconciliation for any non-GAAP pay targets con- contained in the compensation discussion and analysis section of their proxy statements. Four, CI supports a final rule putting universal proxies in place so that shareholders can support whatever combination of nominees they wish to represent them in situations where the corporate director elections involve more candidates than available board seats. And five, CI sports revisiting improvements to proxy plumbing by exploring steps the SEC could take to require that various intermediaries that process proxy votes cooperate to ensure shareholder votes are counted accurately and proxy voters can confirm vote execution with a few clicks on a keyboard. On August 24th, in an interview with Bloomberg, Chair Gensler pledged to strictly enforce a three-year deadline that requires Chinese firms to permit inspections of their financial statement audits by the U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. If the firms refuse, their shares could be delisted by the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ as soon as 2021. If the firms refuse, their shares could be delisted from the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ as soon as 2024. Chair Gensler also indicated that there would continue to be a pause on Chinese firm initial public offerings in the U.S. as long as companies' disclosures aren't adequate. He indicated the IPO freeze could last three weeks or three months. He stated that investors of Chinese firms trading in the U.S. markets near need. He stated that investors of Chinese firms trading in the U.S. markets need full and fair disclosure and that the SEC was looking especially for more information on the political and regulatory risks that companies in China could encounter. He indicated that he envisions the enhanced disclosures being included in Chinese firms' annual reports beginning early next year. Those disclosures would also likely be required to include information about those firms' variable interest entity or shell company structures. On August 30th, in an interview with Barron's, Chair Gensler said that a full ban of payment for order flow is on the table. He explained that payment for order flow is a practice that has an inherent conflict of interest. Market makers make a small spread on each trade, but that's not all they get, he said. They also get the data, they get the first look, they get to match off buyers and sellers out of that order flow. Chair Gensler also added that payment for order flow provides an opportunity for the market maker to make more and ultimately for the investing public to get a little less when they sell and have to pay more when they buy. And that may not be the most efficient market for the 2020s. Chair Gensler said that also on the table is how we move more of market trading from dark pools to greater transparency. He argued that transparency benefits competition and efficiency of markets and transparency benefits investors. In other corporate governance related news, on August 19th, the CI Research and Education Fund published an update to its May 2020 report on poison pills, covering a total of 97 poison pills adopted during 2020 and during the first half of 2021. 
The return of the takeover defense is thought to be largely a response to the plunge in share prices during the U.S. onset of the COVID-19 pandemic and the market uncertainty throughout that time period. The CII REF report provides general background on poison pills and their evolution and looks at the 2020-2021 pills duration, trigger thresholds, qualifying offer provisions, passive investor exceptions, and dead hand provisions. While the pace of poison pill adoption slowed after April 2020, the significant number of additional adoptions after that point was surprising, given that the overall market fall reversed rather rapidly. The report shows that in general, poison pills adopted later in the pandemic tended to last longer and were more likely to be extensions of existing poison pills. Despite the fact that some later poison pill adoptions took place at companies that remain under stress related to COVID-19, others were likely not as influenced by the pandemic and therefore have different attributes than the pills adopted during the pandemic. The newly updated Return of the Poison Pill publication available on CIRF's website may help provide a roadmap for future periods of uncertainty or instability during which companies may choose to adopt poison pills to try to protect themselves from systemic short-term stress. And finally, on August 26th, CII staff issued a report that updated its data on dual-class stock companies. The report available on CII's website indicates that in the first six months of 2021, significantly more companies adopted time-based sunset provisions with their dual-class stock structures than in any of the previous years in which CII has tracked this information. Since 2017, CII has monitored U.S. initial public offerings to keep track of the adoption of dual-class structures. 2021, CII broadened the scope of this research, focusing on the three primary avenues for operating companies to go public. One, traditional IPOs, two, direct listings, and three, DSPAC mergers. Through June 2021, CII found 121 companies went public through traditional IPOs, two used direct listings, and 40 made use of DSPAC mergers. Of the total 163 newly public companies, 39 had dual-class structures, 20 of which incorporate time-based sunsets under which the dual-class structures eventually expire. Also noteworthy in the report is that none of the 20 sunset provisions exceed 10 years, and 12 revert to a single class of stock with equal voting rights at seven years or less after IPO. CI believes that sunset provisions of seven years or less present a credible path to alignment. More companies voluntarily choosing to go public with time-based sunset provisions incorporated in their charters helps reduce risk for long-term investors. That completes my monthly corporate governance and financial regulatory update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff 
J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening and have a great Labor Day weekend. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.